Well, friends, in the words of the Godfather, how's that for an opening for a sermon, right? Words of the Godfather, revenge is a dish best served cold. But, you know, today it might be more accurate to say that it's best served loud. Because music, critics have noted in recent years, the, the, the rise, rather, of revenge lyrics, right? There's a whole genre of music where artists seek to even the score, and it leaves fans wanting to come back for more. And perhaps no one has mastered the art of the verbal takedown of music better than Taylor Swift. <laughs> She's been coming up a lot in James, right? Here she is again. It's the hottest show in music right now, Pictures to Burn, right? That was in her debut album. It goes all the way back to a high school ex where she digs on his pickup and promises to date all his best friends. And then there's Better at Revenge, which is her jab at Joe Jonas, who dumped her for another. Then there's Dear John, which is her song, which is an obvious volley verbally to, uh, to is it John Mayer, who she was dating for some time, and I guess he also left her for someone else. Then there's Bad Blood, there was Mean, there's the whole album, Reputation. And perhaps the most famous... We are never, ever getting back together. Which was her rather snarling salute to the breakup with Jake Gyllenhaal. Which she said in an interview, I wanted a song so catchy that would drive him crazy. And I never forget the first time I heard that song, Crossing a Bridge in Washington, D.C., I thought, oh my gosh, is this going to go on for three more minutes, right? And she said, every time he hears it played, I want him to have my words hounding him in his head. And so for her last world tour, she closed every concert with that song. Ouch. You could say she's made a whole career out of revenge tunes. And listen, if Taylor Swift isn't your jam, there's always Carly Simons. You're so vain. Right? There's Nancy Sinatra's. These boots were made for walking, or I could go back into some other generations. Point being, friends, these songs, they tend to do so well because they tap into an experience and into an emotion that's all too familiar to us. For when we're wronged, we know what it's like to want to give someone a taste of their own medicine. To want to get even, to, to settle the score, to turn the tables, to seek revenge. Friend, do you know at all what that's like? Maybe even a little? Well, I'm guessing the church members that James has been writing to, well, I'm guessing they understand this all too well. So let me encourage you to turn to James now, James chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 7 to 12, and if you're using one of the red Bibles provided in the seatbacks before you, you can find that on page 1013, page 1013. And as you turn there, remember, just as we saw last week, that James's audience, well, they were facing great opposition. Wages were being withheld from workers. The, the rich and the powerful were fleecing the poor and the weak. They were dragging them into court, condemning them, even executing, it seems, some of them. And we're talking trials here and sufferings, right, much bigger than just any celebrity breakup. And no doubt some of them would have wished those tables could be turned. And so what would James have to say to them? 
Let's pick up James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, at first glance, it may be a bit tricky to follow James's train of thought. So he opens with this repeated call we see to be patient, verses 7 and 8. And then he shifts and he starts warning them about grumbling in verse 9. And then he returns to this idea of patient endurance and steadfastness. And he's going to highlight some examples of that in 10 and 11. And then in verse 12, he seems just to take a hard left. And he veers off into an entirely different direction with his invective against oaths. And like chapter 1, we might be tempted to think James suffers from a bit of ADD. But friends, looking closer, I want you to see there's actually a, a pretty clear symmetry to the passage. So notice his words of patience in verses 7 and 8 are then followed by a command of the tongue. Verse 9. And then he's going to return again to that theme of patience and endurance and steadfastness in verses 10 and 11. And he's follow, going to follow that by another command, again, of the tongue. Right? This time not to swear, verse 12. And the symmetry there even continues because both of the commands toward patience and endurance, right, those are positive. So be patient, establish your hearts. The positive example, the prophets and Job. Whereas the commands to the tongue, notice those are negative, right? Don't grumble, don't swear. And both commands toward patience are grounded what? They're grounded in the coming of the Lord. Verse 7, verse 9, and then a, a, a reference of sorts to it, verse 11. And both commands toward the tongue, what do they do? They warn of of judge, of the judge at the door, and the judgment, end of verse 12. And so, friends, I think if we're to try to summarize what James is doing, I think he's saying, in suffering, wait patiently and speak carefully for the Lord's coming quickly. I think that's his basic argument here in 7 through 12. In suffering, wait patiently and speak carefully. Those are the two themes he, he goes back and forth between. Wait patiently and speak carefully for the Lord's coming quickly. And just for the structure of the message, we're just going to break down that sentence. In suffering, wait patiently. And then secondly, in suffering, speak carefully. All the while recognizing, right, the Lord is coming quickly. All right, so first in suffering, wait patiently. First in suffering, wait patiently. It's how James opens, verse 7, be patient, brothers. It's the command he repeats in verse 8, you also be patient. But of course, friends, waiting is the, one of the hardest things to do in life, isn't it? 
when we're suffering, especially, what do we want? We want to escape. We want to be released. We want to be freed. We want to run, maybe even fight, right? Anything but wait. And yet James says that's exactly what these Christians must do. He doesn't say rise up in revolution or riots against the rich. He doesn't say to ignite some kind of class warfare or to incite violence in the streets. No, he says they're to patiently wait. And then he illustrates how they're to patiently wait with three examples. He's going to talk about the farmer in verse 7, and then the prophets in verse 10, and then Job in verse 11. So let's think about those examples. First, he points to the patience of the farmer, verse 7. The farmer who waits expectantly for the harvest. So verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Now, I've never farmed, which will come as no surprise to most of you. Most of you probably laugh at the thought of me farming. I would too. Anything in our yard, I have already managed to kill at least once. Most plants in the house all died, and we've had to bring others back in. It's a miracle. Even our pets, I think, are still alive. Pretty sure, last I checked. At any rate, I do know, though, what it's like right, to plant seeds in the ground, to, to water them, to fertilize them, and then just wait for days and then weeks. And you're just staring, thinking maybe something's happening, perhaps something will sprout. And it's easy in that process to feel helpless, like the whole endeavor is just this prolonged exercise in futility. And all the more so if you're living in the Days of James, right? There's no irrigation. There's no sprinkler systems. The farmer was wholly dependent on the early and late rains in order for the crops to ripen, right? To take form. The too little rain and they're going to wither. Too much rain and they're going to rot. So much is out of the father's hands, right? Out of the farmer, rather. The farmer's hands. Out of his control. And friends, I think that's James's very point, the illustration of the farmer reminds us that faith involves trusting God in what we cannot control. All right, that's the illustration of the farmer. It's, it's reminding us that faith involves trusting God with that which we cannot control. And yet it's not like the farmer is passive through it all. So no, the farmer, what would he be doing? He'd be fertilizing, he'd be weeding, he'd be continuing to tend to the ground, perhaps mending any fences. It's an active kind of waiting, which is exactly, friends, the kind of waiting that we're to do in the Christian life. In the midst of hardship, we're like the farmer who's to wait patiently, yes, but not to wait passively. So we fertilize our own souls, right, with God's word and with prayer. We're to weed out sin in our lives, destroying it at the root. And we're to guard ourselves against intruders by regularly gathering and coming together with God's people and knowing the safety within Christian fellowship, right? That's a very active kind of waiting. Holiness is not just something we drift into. Holiness doesn't just magically happen. Holiness requires action, requires a plan, requires resolve. Which is why he says, verse 8, establish your hearts. 
which is a bit of an odd expression in English. So we talk about maybe establishing residency in a new country or this building was established on such and such a date. But establishing our hearts, what does that mean? Well, that word for establish, you could read as strengthen, as the CSB does, or stand firm, as the NIV does. And in strengthening their hearts, notice how that stands in stark contrast to those last week who had what? Who had fattened their hearts. We're not to do that, we're rather to strengthen them. And in Luke 9.51, this very verb is used of Jesus. We read, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That expression, set his face, is actually the same verb here for strengthen. And right there in Luke, we feel the force of the word. The steely resolution, the the fixed determination to follow God wherever he might lead. This is the kind of waiting that God expects of his people. Now in his second illustration of waiting patiently, what does he do? He points now, verse 10, to the prophets. Verse 10 is an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So notice the prophets are an example of patience in suffering, patience in affliction. And that's important because what's the temptation in the midst of affliction? Well, the temptation is to think that somewhere along the way, something has gone wrong. But the prophets remind us that when we suffer for Christ, it's not usually because something has gone wrong, but because something has gone normal. We're not the first Christians to suffer for the sake of Christ. Think of Jeremiah, for example, that prophet who suffered tremendously. His own family betrayed him. He was beaten and put into stocks by his own people. He was imprisoned by a king. He was consistently threatened with death. He was thrown into a cistern. Those prophets help us see that those who suffer as Christians are not blazing some new trail but they are rather traveling that well-worn path. Blazing no new trails, but rather traveling a well-worn path. And the fact that they were entrusted with God's word did not exempt them from suffering, rather that ensured their suffering. Well, brothers, so too it is with us, brothers and sisters. To follow Christ is to suffer for Christ. There's just not, Jesus says, another way And yet, despite all the suffering, whether or not it's Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah, you name it, what did the prophets do? They continued to preach the word. They did not shirk back from giving God's word to God's people. So as the farmer waits expectantly, we're seeing how the prophet speaks truthfully, even in the midst of suffering. Which brings us to that third illustration of waiting patiently. And here he highlights a specific individual, verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you don't know Job's story, Job was a man who had everything. He had a vibrant faith. He had a large, wonderful family. He had a prosperous estate, and the Lord let all of that be stripped from him. He lost everything, his possessions, his family, his health, even his friends and their attempts to console him only added to his misery. 
It's the antithesis of the rags to riches kind of story. And all this we know from the story, and Job had done nothing wrong, nothing to warrant the suffering. Now, just as an aside, many treat Job as a mythical character. I just want to point out that James doesn't. James treats him as a historical figure. At any rate, what was Job praised for? Well, he's considered blessed not because he's rich. Job isn't considered blessed because he's prosperous, because he's successful. But why? Because he remains steadfast. He endured. It's the same word James used at the, back in the opening of the letter. Remember back in James chapter 1, verse 2. He wrote to them, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Same word. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or as he said in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Friend, you don't have to be the brightest. You don't have to be the richest. You don't have to be the strongest to remain steadfast. You simply have to endure and not give up. You know, FDR assumed the presidency at sort of the depth, the greatest depth of the Great Depression in 1933. And he was once asked by someone, what should they do when they are, quote, at the end of their rope? And FDR responded and said, when you get to the end of your rope, just tie a knot and hold on. Well, there's a sense in which that's what Job does. Job clings desperately. He, so to speak, he ties a knot at the end of his rope and he holds on and clings desperately to what though? Not himself, but to his hope in God. Job, if you know his story, not some saccharine, not some squeaky clean figure, He struggled, he questioned God, he even defied God at one point in the book. And yet despite all, right, the flames of faith were never extinguished in his own heart. And God would not let him go. And it's rather interesting, even reflecting on that, and perhaps ironic to note that we're happy to call Job blessed for enduring such suffering. And we're happy to look at others who have endured such suffering with the kind of steadfastness of Job and call them blessed. And yet, we ourselves have absolutely no interest in undergoing that kind of suffering. And what did Job learn through it all? Verse 11, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful, which is a constant refrain in the Old Testament. Because more valuable than riches and more useful than brains and brawn is to know the Lord himself. For in our suffering, knowing why is never as important as knowing who. We're not given answers to all of our suffering, but we are given a person. We're given the Lord himself, and he is enough. But we're also invited to see God's purpose, verse 11, behind it all. We see that purpose because the life of Job, it is meant to teach us. He couldn't see what we have the benefit of seeing. That the Lord does nothing by accident. Nothing is haphazard. Even when all seems lost to Job, the Lord is executing his plan. Friend, I wonder what is your plan two years from today? I wonder what your plan is. Maybe on July 9th, 2042, At 9.15 p.m., 
Do you have any idea what you'll be planning to do on that day? Well, my guess is you don't have any idea what you'll be doing in 2042. And yet the Lord knows exactly what he'll be doing. So your, your life may feel like a tiny little ship, a little boat, right, tossed to and fro. And you may feel like it's floundering, your life, like you're taking on water. And yet the Lord, as we're seeing in the life of Job, the Lord's at the helm. And he had his purposes. And he would safely see Job to the other side of that storm and those, those seas. And he would get him to port. He would get him home. The Lord knows what he is doing and the purposes of Job's life. And amidst all those trials and suffering, he wouldn't abandon him. He wouldn't give up on him. And friend, he will not you either. So James says in our patience, we're to wait expectantly like the farmer, speak truthfully like the prophets, cling desperately to God like Job. I just wonder, my Christian friend, does that at all describe your life? Does that describe the kind of waiting of your life? In the midst of suffering, do you wait expectantly? Do you speak truthfully? Do you cling desperately to God? Might that describe you even now? Or maybe has that never even described you? You know, it's hard, isn't it? Because that attitude and that kind of posture and disposition in the midst of suffering, it doesn't come naturally to us. It seems foreign, almost alien to us. But James doesn't call us to trust and to wait patiently without giving us a reason, does he? For notice we're to be patient, verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, that term coming of the Lord is, is actually a technical term to refer to Christ's second coming when he comes back for his people. And in the New Testament, we see that, that yeah, that's referenced regularly. And notice that word also there, until, right? Jesus' return, James understands, right, we're to be patient until. In other words, there's a temporal element to it, as in it's not a question for James of whether or not Jesus will return. He will return. It's not a matter of uncertainty to James. It's not up, open for debate. It's not a question of if Jesus will return, but rather when he will return. And James wants us to see, are we going to be ready when he returns? And notice, too, all this patiently waiting until implies, again, there's an end date. It's a defined period. Not forever, but for a limited and defined period of time. You know when you go to the store and you go buy milk or you get yogurt, what do they all have? They've got an expiration date right there on the packaging. It's safe to eat. You get into that expiration date, yeah, it's on you. Might get a little sour, might find some surprises. My Christian friend, there is an expiration date, God says to your suffering. And it's when he comes back for his people. This suffering maybe that you're enduring right now, there's going to come a time when it will end. The Lord will not call you to bear it forever. Whatever suffering you face, whatever cross God has called you to bear, there will come a day when he himself returns and he will lift that cross off your shoulders and he will destroy it forever. The weight, the burden is gone, never to be born again. That day is coming. 
the Lord knows that day it is fixed. And James says that day is not just going to come, he says it's near. Right? We're to establish our hearts, verse 8, for the coming of the Lord, notice, is what? It's at hand. Which means it's imminent, even if not necessarily immediate. Nearness means there is nothing now that stands in the way of Jesus returning. So think about that just in terms of salvation history. So God created us to worship him, to be in wonderful and beautiful communion with him. But what did we do? We rejected him. And so he developed basically a rescue plan, first working through his people Israel in the Old Testament, and then finally through his son, and then through his church in the New Testament. And all of that culminates in Jesus, in his incarnation, then his crucifixion, then his resurrection. I think Silas hit all this, right? Then his ascension, he got all the order. God has done all that in Christ, and now Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. And James's point is that there's nothing else on Jesus' calendar until he returns. That's the next event on the calendar. When Jesus looks at his diary, as the Brits would say, right, as he looks at his calendar, that is what's next, his coming return for his people. So my Christian friend, do you ever meditate on that day? Do you ever reflect on that day? Do you ever ponder it? Do you you keep it regularly in mind? Because recognize from Matthew to Revelation, I think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 references to the coming return of Christ, which means there's about one reference for every 13 verses. In other words, the certain return of Christ is central to the Bible, and to our own understanding if we're going to be faithful in the Christian life. So friend, what about you? I wonder how would the certain knowledge of his coming and how would a growing confidence of that coming, how would that affect how you think even now about your trials? What about your hardships? What about the broken promises in this life? What about the unmet dreamed? What about the dashed expectations? What about the physical suffering? There is an expiration date, James says, to all of it. And what feels to us like an eternity is only, in fact, fleeting and very temporary. His return is right around the corner. In fact, we'll see in just a minute, verse 9, what he's already standing at the door. Which is why in suffering we're to wait patiently, but secondly, note, we're also to speak carefully. Second, yeah, we're to wait patiently, but secondly, we're also, secondly, to speak carefully. Verse 9, James writes, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So here, James returns to one of the dominant and persistent themes of the letter, and that's our speech, right? Our tongues, especially how we sinfully use our speech. We've seen it back in chapter 1, verse 13, verse 19. There was the command to bridle the tongue, verse 126, chapter 126. Then there's chapter 2, and then there's, of course, in chapter 3, 1 to 10, a a long section on the tongue. And then again in 4, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And here we are again in chapter 5, and he comes back to the tongue. Because James, right, Jesus' brother, is reminding us of what his brother taught, namely, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words provide a kind of window into our own souls. 
And evidently, it's not very pretty for these Christians because they're grumbling against one another. Now, we're not told exactly what they're grumbling about, but it's not hard to imagine how it could happen, is it? I mean, think if you've, if you've had a hard day. Maybe it was a, a frustrating meeting at work. The end of the day, and now you're getting in the car and driving home, and you're bringing all that home. Or maybe it was a blow-up of a child right before your spouse happens to walk through the door. Or maybe it was just some frustrating news you received or text. And what happens? Well, we can gripe and moan, and in our anger, we can vent on those closest to us. Those who we know will not and perhaps cannot leave us. They're on the receiving end of our grumbling and our complaining. So it's not hard to imagine how these people suffering under the great pressures of poverty and persecution, how they're turning their frustrations on one another. Maybe they're blaming one another for some of the oppressions they face. Maybe they're disagreeing with how to, how to deal with and how to address these things. We don't know. Point is, they're taking their frustrations out. They're grumbling. But friends, when we grumble against others, recognize the one we're finally grumbling at is God himself. Think of that the next time you grumble about someone else and recognize more than that person, you are in that moment grumbling against God. Is this not what God taught his people in the wilderness? For when Israel grumbled against Moses in the midst of their plight, they didn't have water perhaps or they didn't have enough meat, they started grumbling, they wanted to go back to Egypt, God says, it's not for you, Moses, that they are finally grumbling, but against me. You can go to Exodus 16, for example. Friends, God has ordained our days and our steps. And so when we grumble over our circumstances, when we grumble against one another, we are really grumbling and shaking our fist at God. Do you know what it's like to grumble? Do you know what it's like to regularly complain? To constantly be frustrated with life? To conveniently have scapegoats for those frustrations? Maybe you think my workplace would be so much easier without my boss in it or without this person in it. Or my rooming situation would be so much better if, if this individual wasn't a part of it or they just stopped doing this. Or my marriage would be so much sweeter if my spouse, if they would just shape up or grow up or whatever it might be. Or our church life together would be so much healthier if it weren't for, for all the things we're doing and the way that Brad and the elders are leading you know, why do we do membership and discipline in this way? Why do we do music in this way? Why do we do missions in this way? Why do we do training this way? Why do we do baptism and the Lord's Supper this way? Why are people standing and making commitments and covenants to one another? Right? Grumbling, it can come pretty natural to us. Some of us are, in fact, professional grumblers. Some of you know how to take grumbling and make it a performance art. But James says, watch it. Be careful, verse 9, lest you be judged. For the judge, Jesus, is standing at the door. There should be an exclamation point in your Bible right there. The judge is at the door. He's right there, James is saying. He's near. You know that expression, when the, when the cat's away, the mice come out to play? Well, when we're not thinking about Christ's sure and certain return... What do we do? We go about our own way. We treat Judgment Day like it's this thing off in the distant future. Maybe, maybe even not, 
a new or recent possibility, and we're tempted, if we think it's off in the distant future, to live as we please. We're tempted to say what we want. We're tempted to do what we want. But friends, James is saying that Jesus stands now at the threshold. He's just on the other side of the door. His hand is even now reaching for the handle. And he can overhear everything. My Christian friends, you know, members of UBC in particular, how might your relational conflicts change if you actually believed Christ's hand was on the door and he was ready to step through? Do you think you'd reconcile more quickly? Do you think you'd let go of that grudge more freely? Do you think you'd speak more graciously to one another? Do you think you'd grumble less frequently? I'm betting you would. I know I would. But you know, some of you today listening, you wouldn't profess to be followers of Christ. And I'm so grateful you came on a day like today where you got to hear those baptismal testimonies because no one is born into the Christian faith. Right? We all have to make a decision to follow Christ. We have to come to terms with what will our relationship be with Jesus Christ. And friend, if that's you, I want you to see Jesus will return. As certain as he came once, Jesus will come again. And the first time Jesus came, he came how? He came humbly. He came in great poverty. But the second time he comes, he will come with all his divine glory. And the first time he came, what? To save the world. But the second time he says he is coming to judge the world. And because he's a righteous judge and a good judge and a just judge, there will be no sin, however small, left unpunished. Which is why Christ came and he died on the cross. It's why he died, not for the righteous, but for sinners. And then he rose again, conquering sin and death, so that everyone who recognizes that need for Christ and who turns and trusts in him, places their faith in him, Jesus invites them, welcomes them to be part of his own family. Friend, one day you will kneel before Jesus. Every one of us will bow the knee to Jesus. The question is, will you bow to him as your savior or will you bow to him as your judge? There are only two ways. Friend, trust in Christ. He's a gracious savior. But grumbling isn't the only issue because James goes back to the tongue in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes or your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, to be clear, he's not referring to foul language, though, of course, the Bible's things to say about that. And we do feel here how James is leaning in, right? But above all speaks to the importance of what he's about to say. And that expression, my brothers. Now, brothers, that, that expression we see four times in the passage. My brothers just here, eight times throughout James. And in every instance, it's meant to underscore something. It's meant to emphasize what he's about to say. And it's clear he's getting his teaching, again, from his brother Jesus. Matthew 5, 34. Jesus says, but I say unto you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
or from the evil one. So that word to swear means to really affirm the veracity of one's statement by invoking some kind of divine authority. And then by implication, if you don't follow through, that authority will punish. And we know from Matthew 23, there was this growing tendency to weasel out of oaths by swearing by less sacred things. Jesus even speaks to that some in Matthew 5. And James is saying, listen, you got to cut all that out. Shouldn't be that way. Now, some Christian traditions, like the Anabaptists, conclude from this verse that Christians can't make an oath at all, even in a court of law. But I don't think that's James's point here. I, think, I don't think he's saying we can't sign legal documents, that we can't make financial commitments, that we can't pursue things like mortgage papers and can't promise to do things in the future. What's he getting at? He's saying we shouldn't make oaths with our kind of our fingers crossed behind our back. We shouldn't make rash promises that we don't intend or we know we will be unable to fulfill. And you can imagine how that could be happening here. Because these Christians, remember, they're in a desperate situation. And what do you do when faced with desperate circumstances? You quickly run and you make rash vows and promises. Right? It's the child pleading with the parent, promising anything to the parent just to avoid discipline. It's the one pleading with another after they've made a huge mistake. Maybe to a spouse, I'll never do it again. I'll do anything you want. Just don't leave. Oaths, vows we're making. It's the guilty before a judge. When he says, I've learned my lesson, right? I'll reform my ways. Don't send me to prison. We hear it in those expressions of people say things like, scout's honor. Or, by God, I swear. Or, on my mother's grave. We have all these English expressions that speak to this. And it seems these Christians in the face of great poverty and privation, were making oaths like this. Maybe they were making rash oaths to landlords for money or for creditors for quick funds that they, they needed to pay back debts, but they know they would never be able to pay those things back. They couldn't fulfill, barring some miracle in their lives. And in the process, what happens when they make vows like this? They know they can't keep or fulfill. Well, they impugn their own character and Christ's witness, and they threaten judgment upon themselves, James says. That word for condemnation is just the nominal form of the word for judge back in verse 9. James is saying we shouldn't embed our speech with flowery promises in order to make people believe what we have to say. We shouldn't have to do that because all of our speech should be true. So James is not ruling out speaking under oath in a courtroom, but he is ruling out the need to do so outside of one. Everything we say should be true. Our word ought to be enough. So friend, what about you? Are you known as one who is faithful to your word? You know, if you're, if you're young in the room, to the youth in the room, when you promise to do something for your parents or maybe for a teacher, do you follow through? Do you do it right away or do you delay or perhaps not do it at all? Think of maybe a sibling or maybe they'll forget. Do you make commitments at work or at church that you don't fulfill? 
Do you say, agree to work in children's ministry? Not to press in a little bit and then, oh, it's a late Saturday night, not feeling great Sunday morning, kind of tired. Someone else will fill in. Someone else will grab my spot. It may feel small, but James is saying our words matter throughout the entire book. So William had a swim meet this weekend. And when he swims, one of the parents always has to volunteer at the meet. You've got a time or do hospitality or be a meet marshal or something. And normally meets on the weekends, what am I doing? I'm always writing my sermon. So what does that mean? Aaron's usually the one serving. And she is timed enough, I think, to be like a professional timer at the Olympics. All right, but she was gone this weekend. She was doing a Bible workshop in Iowa. So guess what? That duty fell upon me. And in conversations with uh, one of my children, they responded to me and they just said, hey, dad, dad, don't worry about it. Don't, don't go. You're going to be stuck there timing all day. And, and any person can step in. Dad, you have your sermon to write. And you know what? They were right. I did have my sermon to write. And I would be there all day, actually, for two days. And I confess, when they said it, I'm like, that is a compelling proposition. I would love not to have to go time. But I just had to look and say, you know, what the problem is we've made a commitment. We said to them that we would be there to serve. And what does it say to everyone else on the team? What does it say to all the other parents? What does it say to the coaches if I just don't show and expect someone else to fill my spot? Not to mention the fact that I bear the name of Christ. And not to mention the fact that I'm also a pastor, right? That one always gets me. The Christian one should get me, but it's like, oh, I represent UBC, ah, right? Either way, that's true. So what? I timed it to meet, right, for two straight days. Point is, we've got to be true to our word, which means some of you may need to learn how to say no more often. That's my problem. If you know me at all, I say yes to too many things because they're good things. And I want to do these things, and I intend to do these things. At least, I think I intend to do them. Until I come home, and my wife's like, what else did you commit to? Were you going to get the time for that? Did you just invent more hours in your day? Right? She helps point out the fact that my schedule doesn't permit these six additional things. I've just worked into it. But it was good stuff. I wanted to do it. But what ends up happening? I can't be faithful to my word. I can't fulfill it. We're not God. And we shouldn't make promises we can't keep and we don't possibly have the power to keep. And part of our createdness is to realize this. Which is why we should simply let, James says, our yes be yes and our no be no. So what about you? In times of great trial, great oppression, it is easy to wish the tables were turned. And maybe we're not going to write a billboard-topping hit about it, as Taylor does. But we might grumble, we might gossip, we'll complain. Even worse, we might seek to get even. But James here is steering us down a different path. He's saying in the midst of suffering, we're to wait patiently and speak carefully, for the Lord is coming quickly. Friend, how will you wait for him? Let's pray.